Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Alida Miranda-Wolf about the new book, Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last. Clear, actionable steps for you to build new values, experiences, and perspectives into your organizational culture, infusing it with diversity, inclusion, and belonging employees need to feel accepted, be their best selves, and do their best work. Well, Alida, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I would like to start by asking whether you can reflect on how has this pandemic influenced you and your work and how are you adjusting to the new normal? It's been an interesting time for me as somebody who has spent the last eight years studying belonging because when the pandemic started, I noticed shifts in workplace culture as a diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging practitioner, and also in my social circles. And namely, what I noted is that this sense of belonging, which I define as feeling part of something bigger than yourself that values and respects you and that you value and respect back, was in decline. I actually was part of a study with Sharehold to talk to employees and organizations about their experience of belonging over the first nine months of the pandemic. And what we found was there was increased social isolation, a lack of connection, an overall sense of feeling lonely. And that was supported by other research and data that was coming out around the concept of loneliness, namely that for people ages 18 to 24, 51% of them were experiencing what is called severe loneliness, so a lack of social wellness, a lack of connection, and the idea that if something were to happen, you have someone there for you. And then similarly, we found that for young mothers in particular, there was a 61% likelihood of this sense of severe loneliness. So as a researcher, the pandemic has been interesting in being a real-life case of what I have been working on theoretically and in smaller examples, which is belonging is a basic psychological need. And we've seen a real decline in mental health as this pandemic has gone on and increased this sense of social isolation. For me personally, the pandemic has been an interesting time. It certainly was a roller coaster for me when it began. And there were some things that stood out to me in particular. So at the time that it started, my husband is actually a scientist who works on COVID. So I had more access to information than other people. And, you know, I was running my business and we were in year three, we had some ambitious goals and everything stopped. So our existing clients stayed with us, but 
prospective clients were saying, this is nice to have. This is not must have. I'm not going to put DEIB into my organization if I'm going to have to lay people off because of the economic situation that pandemic is causing. So there was a period of panic, but the pandemic itself wasn't the only thing going on. And so by May, when we saw the murder of George Floyd and the national protests begin, we heard the exact opposite take from our clients at Ethos. And so the second half of 2020 was a massive ramp up in terms of meeting specifically employee needs when it came to issues of identity. But it also led to other changes for me. So during the pandemic, I have uh, doubled my business in size, uh, in terms of team size and revenue, and run a full remote team, which is a very new experience. We always had an office before. I've always been in an office before. I uh, wrote, published, and released my first ever book, Cultures of Belonging. I am pregnant. I'm actually eight months pregnant today and have navigated the healthcare system during the pandemic, which has been very difficult and very unusual uh, given the circumstances, especially with continued quarantining and restrictions in my state. And then on top of all of that, there's been loss. There have been people who have passed or become very ill, and either it's been due directly to COVID-19 itself or just not being able to get medical care in the time that they need because our hospitals are overloaded. So overall, the pandemic has been a very interesting time and a very busy time. One of my colleagues talk about the pandemic is the great pause. And for me, I don't think any time in my life I've had to move more quickly or had more happening at one time. Wow, that's a quite sequence of events during pandemic. And congratulations all on welcoming a new member of your family soon. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Alita Miranda Wolf, and I like to share the full story of my name. My name is very important to me, and I like to kind of use that in understanding my identity. So I will start there. Uh, first of all, I identify as a white passing Hispanic cisgender woman with an invisible disability and as a pregnant person. My name I think speaks to the fact that so much of my life, I've been a bridge between different groups and communities because I do have a number of non-dominant identities. And with a few exceptions, I pass where I'm able to successfully cover, so play down that disfavored identity. And in other ways, I participate in the dominant group. And so my name is starting with Alita, that means angel. And I think it's funny because I actually do think that names can, in some ways, impact the course of your life. And the name itself is tied to what my mission is, which is to teach love. Camille, I'm named after Camille Claudel, the artist who died in total obscurity, overshadowed by her more famous lover and brother. <laughs> and uh, I always think about the fact that the main reason was because she was a woman living in the 1800s. And I will say that my experience in the professional world in particular has been one of very much feeling my gender identity, although I know I carry a number of privileges as someone who identifies as cisgender, it hasn't changed the incidences of sexual harassment, of being left out of conversations, of not having the same opportunities afforded to me as peers from other genders. And then Miranda Wolf. So that hyphen is my story. And I'm going to stick with that. So I have two families that make up the composite me. There's the Miranda side of my family, and they are Cuban refugees for the most part, although we still have family in Cuba. And you can think of them as almost eternal immigrants. My mom went from Cuba to Spain to the United States, and even in the U.S., from state to state to state. 
And they are a very different group of people. They're the sort of people who have always been very progressive in their views, are definitely more citizens of the world than any one place, are very much tied to Cuban traditional beliefs, including Santeria, which is the syncretic religion that combines West African Yoruba with Catholicism. And then on the other side of my hyphen are the wolves. And the wolves are the absolute definition of wasps. They are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and they have been in the United States since the 1600s. Through them, I am a daughter of the American Revolution. So this contrast has really defined me. And on good days, what I think it's done is helped me be a better translator and interpreter between cultures, which has really showed up in the work that I do and in my motivations in the work that I do, as well as how I lead my life and who my social circle is and where I've chosen to live and who I've chosen to be with. It also, on bad days, has meant that I just have not experienced my own sense of belonging because no community has really been quite right. I am not white enough. I am not Hispanic enough. And this idea of not counting really followed me through from childhood to adolescence to my young adult life. And I try to make no bones about it. I have pursued belonging as an ideal for so long because I know what it is to live without it. And I also know what it is when you experience it, even in small pockets, the security, the stability, the safety, and the sense of really being heard and seen. So that's a little bit about me in the more general, who is Alita as a person? Professionally, I would just say that I am the CEO and founder of Ethos, which is a full-service diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging transformation firm based in Chicago, but with clients actually all over the U.S. and internationally. I have been a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging practitioner for about a decade. I have been an author for about a week, (laughs) meaning that my book was published, uh, but finally released on Tuesday of last week. And I am someone who has had a very circuitous route. So before I was in DEIB, I was in venture capital. I was in nonprofits. I was in higher education. I started at the University of Chicago when I was 16. And pretty much since that point, I've been experimenting with where how and why to create systems and situations where I can support underrepresented and underserved groups, specifically in reaching opportunities. So what would you say to our listeners that might be in your position? For example, our younger listeners like students and uh, people from underrepresented communities? Well, for one, I think it's important to acknowledge change. So one of the big challenges that we experience in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is our entire system of language and communicating about identity is in flux. And young people, students in particular, have been exposed to an entirely new vocabulary. And so one thing I would want them to know and remember is that when they're interacting with folks from other generational cohorts, so if they're Gen Z and they're working even with millennials, Gen Xers, baby boomers, there may not actually be as much difference or divide between you. The language has just changed. And so whether someone is familiar with the term cisgender or transgender doesn't necessarily mean what their orientation is towards those identities. And I think it's important because as somebody who teaches Gen Z and has taught at the University of Chicago and Northwestern in classes with them, what I notice is they have a whole lot of vocabulary, a whole lot of context. They're much more plugged into things like social justice And they don't have as much exposure to people who aren't like them or who don't have that level of experience. And so I believe in mutuality and reciprocity above all else. And I spend a lot of my time working with folks in other generational cohorts to help them 
be more sensitive and inclusive in their language usage, to embrace rather than reject or be skeptical of, for example, the increasingly widening gender spectrum that we see manifested in Gen Z the most concretely. And those same people need to be treated in the right context, which is where would they learn this given that they're consuming different media in different social circles and are in different environments? There has to be an exchange of information. And for folks from underrepresented groups who are listening to this, I mean, there are so, so, so many things that I could say. What I want to in part as a result is actually coming from one of my professional heroes, Adrienne Marie Brown, which is hurt people hurt people, but healed people heal people. And the process of community healing and being part of your own community where you can engage in a healing-centered approach one that embraces your cultural identities, your aspirations for yourself, what is possible, and reframes the conversation from uh, this is what happened to you to what is right with you, as Sean Ginwright says, uh, who is the person who coined the term healing and centered engagement, I think is so important because care and care within your own community and circle is necessary for longevity and sustainability in an ongoing, I mean really ongoing, process of reckoning with discrimination and the isms. So your latest book is Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Very simply, I have always wanted to write a book and have been trying to do so my whole life. When I was in second or third grade, I bought a journal and I wrote a book in it <laughs> that was a fiction book. And when I went to college, I actually, in some ways by happenstance, came into creative nonfiction and ended up doing my thesis in creative nonfiction where I actually, the name of the work that was ultimately produced was called Trauma Essays, which really combined my lifelong interest in trauma and recovering from trauma, as well as the idea of personal narrative. When I graduated, all I wanted to do was work on a book. And I had really great advisors and they were in the creative nonfiction space, specifically of memoir, and they kept saying, wait until you're 40, wait until you've had more of a life, which mm -hmm. was interesting for me just because I work with people who are 40 and continuously talk about the fact that I've had so much life experience, especially tied to trauma. So it, it was kind of an interesting um, idea, but my response to it was not to give up, but to consider what kind of book could I write? And I had started thinking about it really deeply around the time that I was 24. Because by this time, I had been working on implementing large scale DEIB strategies in our portfolio companies at my venture capital firm. Of course, I didn't call it DEIB. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I didn't really have access to that community. It was so, so, so new to the point that when I launched Ethos, there were really only three other firms who did it in the city, which is a city of 8 million. So it was very new, but I was thinking about it in terms of culture. And that's how we get the cultures of part of the book title. When I started running Ethos, what I realized is I felt like the work I was doing, especially with my team, once I brought a team on, was really making an impact. And I could see changes over time in our organizations, and I could see what was working and not working. And even though we were reasonably priced and still are relative to the market, because we do serve a number of nonprofits, um, startup tech companies, smaller professional firms, in addition to our large Fortune 100 clients, you know, 
I've recognized that so many people are being asked to do this work for free as volunteers in their organizations, which I want to name I don't support and don't agree with. I think those individuals should be compensated for their time. And I also think that they should be given support where they can actually volunteer instead of having to become a DEIB professional overnight. That's an aside. I wanted to help as many people as possible. And so I thought, well, what would I do to make all of the work that we do at Ethos and that I've been doing for this period of time totally open source? And that's how I wrote my book proposal and ultimately was able to write Cultures of Belonging. It is absolutely a practical manual and a roadmap because I want folks to be able to buy it, build a strategy, and execute on it. And I will say it did come from a place, like for many other authors, of I wanted that book when I was inside of my organization and I couldn't find it. And I read two to three books a week and I read a lot of books on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And there are fantastic ones that I would be happy to recommend. They did not spell out for me what I structurally needed to do or how to do it. And I wanted that to be available to folks who were going through the actual day-to-day rigor of making change happen. Oh, that's a beautiful motivation. Absolutely. So let's delve into some of the topics that you cover in your book. And can we start with the very basics? Can you describe what does DEIB stand for? DEIB stands for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. So can you let us know what do these terms mean? So they're not actually uniformly defined in the same way. And this is one of the reasons that when I'm leading facilitation or training, I go out of my way to define them just so that we have shared language and context. The way that I view it is this. Diversity is really variety within a group. And you can think about it in terms of biodiversity. So if you're in a forest, if there are organisms from all different species and you are in that environment, you can see that it is biodiverse. If you're in a forest and it's all of the same species, well, it isn't biodiverse and there are risks associated with that, right? In terms of diseases that can strike, natural disasters, etc., because you have everybody dependent on the same mechanisms for survival within that ecosystem. So it's the same in any group. What I like to add is when I think about diversity inside of an organization, what I see is five kinds that show up the most. So there's physical diversity, and this is generally what we think about when we think about diversity. So that could be race, gender expression. It could be if you have a visible disability uh, or you are another nationality and it's reflected in your speech patterns. That's physical diversity. There's also socioeconomic diversity, so what class you identify with, how much money your household had when you were growing up, where you consider your income level to be today, uh, what access to education you've had, how much education you've had. There's also um, cognitive diversity, which has become a much greater topic of discussion. And this is really where that definition of diversity is diversity of thought, multiple perspectives comes from. So I'm really careful with folks because I don't want to invalidate the importance of diversity of thought. It is only one of five pillars of diversity. And it encompasses everything from your communication style to your processing style and the time it takes you to process to how your brain works. Neurodiversity would be part of this category. So would mental health and how you identify in terms of your mental health. There is values-based diversity. This comes down to what you believe. And so this is often associated with your cultural identity. It's associated with really your philosophy, your religion, your spirituality, how you define right and wrong. And then the last kind of diversity in an organization 
is your vocational diversity. What role you hold, what level you hold, whether you manage people or not, what access to decision-making you have, all of that is encompassed. What's interesting about diversity is it's an outcome. You can achieve it. It will change because people will come and go. And yet, you can see it. You can see it in environments. And that's part of why people set their metrics around count. How much representation do we have rather than what is the experience of people within the group, which is really what inclusion is. So inclusion is also an outcome. You can measure it. You can achieve it and assign it a score. What I mean by that is you can ask the people in your group how they feel within that group. And if they feel that they've been welcomed, that they've been invited in, that they are received well for who they are in their identities, you can say they feel included. There's just a lot more variability because what makes people feel included is different. And also where they feel included is more complicated. You can feel really included on your immediate team, but not in your company. You can feel really included in your company, but not in your industry. That's inclusion. Equity is different because it's not an outcome, it's a process. And it's the process by which we move from diversity to inclusion, the process by which we get to diversity, and ultimately the necessary pillar for any kind of belonging. And equity, very simply, is about the relationship between power and fairness. So what that means is equity is concerned with the fact that power is unequally distributed, And that has major social impacts. So it looks to not only correct that imbalance by providing equal access, but it also acknowledges that if you're coming from a place of inequality, simply restoring to a baseline will not eliminate all of those disadvantages that you may have experienced from having less power. And so it's also concerned with individual need. And the example that I give here, and that is in the book, is bicycles. So you can give everyone a bicycle, and that would be equality. Equity is everybody gets a bicycle that works for them. So if you have somebody with a mobility disability, it might be a recumbent bicycle. If you have somebody who is having a very different body type and size than the standard bicycle is made for. It's making sure that they have a bicycle that works for them. So that's how we want to think about equity. And then in terms of belonging, I said it at the top here, but I want to say it again in a little bit of a different way because belongingness research in particular has been happening for a long time in social psychology and was a huge, huge part of the 90s general research into psychological needs and norms. And it was Roy Baumeister, along with other researchers, who developed this theory of belongingness. And in his sort of seminal paper, he writes, to belong is to matter. And if you're interested in psychology and are pursuing psychology, you might know about the concept of mattering, which is the feeling that others value you, that you have value and worth in the world. So to say that you feel you belong is a very, very big thing. And what I have always been interested in is, what does that look like in an organizational context where the rules are different, the relationships are different, and the general mandate is different? Feeling belonging within, let's say, a community organization or even a friend group is going to be different. And what mattering means is going to be different. So from my perspective in an organization, belonging is about one, feeling part of something greater than yourself. Two, feeling that you are valued and respected in that group. And three, that you value and respect that group. And that's actually pretty hard to achieve. I think about it in terms of three R's. So first of all, you need relationships. You cannot feel part of something greater if you feel completely disconnected from the people who are in it with you. Right? You need to feel that you care about those individuals, that you know those individuals, that you're working towards the same thing. 
there's also just the element of to feel part of something greater than yourself that values and respects you requires resources. In an organization, you can super believe in what you're doing. We see this in mission-driven organizations and nonprofits all the time. And you know that you're underpaid and undervalued. You're not going to feel belonging because of the resources piece. Similarly, relationships take time. They take energy. They take mental space. So in a place where everyone is extremely overloaded, being able to achieve a sense of belonging is challenging. And then the last piece is reciprocity, the give and take. It's not just that you feel valued and respected as an employee. It's that you value and respect the organization. And I think this is a place where we can go back to your question about the pandemic. What's been so interesting to me is in 2020, the conversation was people didn't feel belonging because they felt they could be laid off at any time. And that didn't feel like they were valuable. And it certainly didn't feel like they were respected. In 2022 and lots of 2021 with the great resignation and so many people leaving the workforce and switching their jobs, the conversation was flipped because employees were saying, I have good benefits, I have good pay, I like my colleagues, and I really don't feel good about what my company does. So it's a great environment for me. And it doesn't align with my values, with my beliefs, with my sense of purpose, which is also why we've seen more and more folks interested in social impact as a career path, because they're trying to find that alignment. And it's just a hard sell for organizations right now who are engaged in some harder to stomach activities. I've seen a lot of people leave organizations that have rejected DEIB, such as Coinbase, who lost 60 of their employees of color when their CEO published a letter basically saying, we will not address this issue. Basecamp in Chicago, a tech company, lost a third of their employees when they said that they were banning DEI committees and any kind of polarizing talk within the organization, especially within Slack. I mean, we're seeing employees say, yeah, there are a lot of good things about my company, but ultimately my integrity matters more. And so that reciprocity piece, I think, is actually the hardest to manage to right now in terms of creating belonging and creating a sense of mutuality. So how can organizations assess on how they are doing on achieving these DIB goals? So the first thing that I think is really important is that the answer is a whole lot more simple than a lot of organizations think, which is ask. Ask your employees. And if you don't think they'll give you truthful answers, make your asks anonymous. And if you still don't think they'll give you truthful answers, bring somebody else in to ask them and confidential conversations and theme out what they heard overall. Because we need to go back to inclusion. You cannot achieve a DEIB strategy if people don't feel included. And if they don't feel included, it doesn't matter how great your representation metrics are. So asking is a big deal. And I will go back to 2020 for a second here because after the protest started, I had like literally the week after the protest started, I had in six days, 41 meetings with companies asking me what they should do because their employees were outraged or heartbroken or traumatized and we're expecting a whole lot of them organizationally in terms of how to respond. And I had call after call after call where I was like, have you talked to the black employees in your organization? And the answer was no. Hmm. And like overwhelmingly no. And I don't identify as a black person. I don't pretend to understand the full level of that experience within a workplace, and I never would. I also thought, well, this is weird. So I put open office hours for any employees who identified as black within our client organizations for a week between 4 to 6 p.m. And they completely filled up for that week. 
And they wanted someone to talk to about what they would need in terms of support, about what they were processing, about challenges and experiences they were having. And it was really easy for me to assess what was going on in organizations overall, just from having those research interviews and being a listening partner. But in terms of what it takes to assess your organization, it is hard to do assessments in a group. And so that's why frameworks and models are really helpful. And the simplest framework and model, even though it's not simple, and I don't want to invalidate all of the nuance in it, is the Miller-Katz model known as the path. It's the path from an exclusive club to an inclusive organization. You can find the actual white paper on it and how to apply it online. It's not difficult to find. But really what they spell out is that an organization could be at one of six stages. Exclusive club is when you are absolutely homogenous and proud of it. So I always give the example of one of my first clients. The founders all went to Northwestern University They used their brand colors of purple and white because those are Northwestern's colors. All of their interns came from Northwestern and they hired their employees from Northwestern. Mm -hmm. This might seem like an extreme example, but it's actually fairly common in organizations of their size. So 10 people. And that's an exclusive club. They were proud of it. They were proud of their affiliation with the university and they didn't make any attempt to seek out relationships with other universities for their college recruiting or even consider people who hadn't gone to a university. A passive club is basically where that philosophy exists, but it's not explicitly stated. So people feel pressure to conform or to assimilate. If they don't, they aren't going to be rated well on their performance. There aren't a whole lot of efforts around representation or diversification. And importantly, in both an exclusive club and a passive club, you have virtually no diversity. The reason it's important to note that is because people will say, well, we feel super included here. It is very easy (laughs) to feel included in a group of people who are exactly like you. It's not so easy when your group is heterogeneous, which is what comes in what starts like our hardest phases. Symbolic differences is when you have what Miller and Katz call pioneers, what I prefer to call as onlys. These are people who are the first of their social identity group to to be part of an organization. And they come into the organization and there's a lot of pressure on them. And they're usually doing two jobs. They're doing the job they were hired for and the job of proving that they deserve to be there, of dispelling stereotypes, of speaking for their entire group, of actually working to bring more diversity into the organization, usually unpaid. And this phase is where we start to see more representation, but we don't have anything else. We, we just have some diversity. If folks keep pushing in that direction and bringing in more representation, they'll get to a stage known as critical mass. And at critical mass, you have enough of a given group that people don't actually think about the fact that they are part of an underrepresented group within the organization. So when I worked in industrial supplies, I certainly felt like I was in the symbolic difference phase whenever I was at a trade show. But on my immediate team, there were enough women on my team that I really didn't think about being a woman as a regular day to day in that environment. The issue with critical mass and what makes people get stuck here is it's just representation. There's no long-term strategy. There are no formal plans. You have a lot of self-segregation and separation because people do tend to cluster with folks who are the same. And that's going to be true whether you're in the dominant or non-dominant group. And the organization isn't doing anything to promote integration, cross-collaboration, cross-training. It's kind of a chaotic phase. And it's also a high-risk phase because if you have significant numbers of people leave, especially from underrepresented groups, you're right back where you started. Symbolic differences, passive club, exclusive club. However, if in a critical mass phase, you put the effort and do the work of building that strategy, 
changing structures, changing systems, changing processes, you get to a phase known as welcoming. And this is where representation of differences is truly valued. We're moving beyond tolerance or rejection. And individuals are really working at adapting to different cultural contexts where there's both representation and if you ask underrepresented groups, they feel included. But it's tenuous. It can change and it doesn't feel very secure. To get from welcoming to an inclusive organization, one, this state of affairs has to remain for a significant period of time. Two, we have to move beyond a sense of being welcomed or invited in into actually achieving that sense of belonging amongst our employees. And we have to consider levels, so local versus global. And that can mean two different things. So that can mean if you have multiple offices, is your headquarters inclusive and your satellite locations inclusive. We see this as a real challenge when we look at big distributed companies where one office will be there and another will be totally at Passive Club. The other thing is local versus global in terms of how you're manifesting being an inclusive organization. So local would be at the employee level inside of the organization. Global would be how you impact your community, how you bring on vendors and what your network of vendors looks like, what code of ethics you have for your customers or clients, and how you manifest inclusivity specifically, not just inside of the organization, but in a more outward way. And so you can determine based on those characteristics where you think you are, and that can let you know what you need to work towards. So that's why I like to use that model, because it's a little bit more actionable than others. I will just recommend the most successful exercise I've ever done with this model is I've had groups of people from inside of an organization independently decide where they are, put up a sticky note or answer a poll, and then have a discussion because I have never had an organization where every employee answered the same way. And that's something crucial about the model. You might be a welcoming organization for people of color and an exclusive club for people with disabilities and a critical mass for folks who do not have a BA or above. And that's one of the challenging parts of the model. And that's why it's continuous. It's not something that is ever fully completed. So once the organization has uh, sort of zeroed in into some of the issues they want to tackle, so what would be the ways for them, for example, to improve communication within the organization? There are certainly a lot of different ways to improve communication. I'm gonna keep it simple (laughs) so I'm not so long-winded. The first is when you acknowledge an issue, you have to tell people that you know it's there. It sounds trite and cliche, but acknowledging and accepting that there is a problem is the first step. In organizations where I see a mistake around this is leaders or the folks in charge of being change agents come from this place of, okay, we found a problem. Now we're going to fix it before anybody can notice it. We're not going to talk about it. We're just going to resolve it. And that will be it. (sighs) Okay. Something that I feel the need to remind folks of all the time is your employees already know the problem exists. You probably found out about the problem from them. So if you don't want to report your diversity metrics, or let's say I had a client who didn't want to report out to their employees that from a representation standpoint, they did really well bringing diversity in, but that set of people that they were looking at were the most likely to leave, that they had high churn, high attrition of people from underrepresented groups, specifically when we think about racial identity. And I said to them, don't you think people notice who's leaving? (laughs) You spend all day at work, you have a set of colleagues, and then they're just not there anymore. So that's a mistake. And the first step of communication is to say, this is exactly what's happening. 
this is what we commit to doing to solving it and actually starting to engage in two-way communication, which is painful. It's very painful, and it is virtually impossible to please everyone in a given group. And so it's important to start to develop real skills in healthy conflict and healthy dissent, because not every organization is for everyone. And my belief is that is not applicable to social identity that should be applicable to personal or individual identity so the steps are to name what's going on and to tell everybody about it to propose solutions for how you plan to deal with it and make it clear who is accountable who is responsible to communicate it on an ongoing basis and solicit feedback and conduct regular check-ins and open forums and take what you learn and use it If this feels like a really top-down approach, it is. You know, I am very much pro-coalition. And it is, in fact, the reason that I do DIB work in my personal activism, the coalition, the sense of solidarity, the sense that none of us are special, but all of us are needed. All of that is critical to my belief system. But we have to understand that we're working in organizational structures where leaders really do have the most capacity to change things and are the ones most likely to get in the way. So we do need to start with them in terms of change. Otherwise, we're asking employees to mobilize and make themselves vulnerable without a commitment that there won't be consequences. So this concept of belonging that you have right in the title of your book is really interesting to me. And I actually found it the hardest to wrap my head around. So in what ways can the organization foster this kind of sense of belonging in their employers, employees? So there's the answer at the individual level versus at the system level. And at the system level, it's actually easier to address at the individual level. And that comes from the fact that my sense of belonging might come from different things than someone else's. So I like to think about achieving belonging in terms of principles. Your organization is made of adults. They should feel that they have agency and choice in their decision-making. That's a way of communicating respect and value. If you are going to foster belonging in an organization, everybody has to understand that organization. It's why, even though it sounds really practical and businessy, I always ask teams, do you know exactly how your organization makes money? Do you know exactly what your organization does? Do you know exactly what your organization is trying to do? Because if you want to be part of something greater than yourself, you have to understand what that thing is. And that's baseline information. There's also just an importance on balancing and weighing the need for, when it comes to communication, efficiency versus psychological safety. And to achieve belonging, we have to be really critical thinkers around some of the tenets of white supremacy. So where is our sense of urgency coming from? Is it necessary? Who is it applied to? Who does it not apply to? When it comes to perfectionism, what is the standard? Why is it the standard? And are people held to different standards? Concentration of power. Is power being shared? Are people invited into the decision-making process? as opposed to simply informing it or being left out of it altogether. When it comes to the organizational goals, when we say, you know, bigger is better or we want to do more, does everybody know why? Do you know why? Can you tell Mm. the story around that? All of those things contribute to belonging. On an individual level, it's harder because I might really value and respect the organization that I'm part of. But depending on my own value space diversity, that might not happen, right? But it's about thinking through what would that look like within a larger group made up of a lot of different people? What is your belief system? What are your ethics? And perhaps most importantly, how do you hold to those? I think that that is why... Um, In particular, Johnson & Johnson gets used as a case study in so many examples of positive culture, because when 
the big incident with um, poisoned drugstore Tylenol came up. What they did first was they went back to their credo, which is essentially their mission statement about what they exist to do, who they are, why they do it, debated it amongst everyone within the organization who was responsible for making the product, and then ultimately made their decision around how they would move forward and what they would do. They had extremely high retention rates as a result. People reported feeling valued and important to the business was it ended up leading to a response that garnered positive rather than negative publicity and more customer support rather than less despite the trust breach. So there are some elements that are going to lead to belonging, such as true collective decision-making, making sure that you're asking people about their experiences and responding when issues are raised, making information transparent and clear, and also having a code that you operate by that everybody knows you'll operate by. Because what is implicit in belonging is that it requires trust. And trust is hard. You have to earn trust every single day. It's kind of like, as Rachel Botsman, who is a well-known trust researcher, has shared, it's like the currency of interactions. You don't just have trust and it's there forever. And her definition of trust, which is a confident relationship to the unknown, is my favorite. You can't really have belonging without a sense from the people who are part of your group that even though there are so many unknowns and there's so much ambiguity, the organization will make the right choice. So what would you like to see in the future with regards to organizations and DAIB goals? For one... The most radical piece, <laughs> the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. DIB is flawed. And I say that as a practitioner for the last decade, it's flawed because it came out of corporate environments. So in many ways, it exists to serve those environments rather than completely reimagine or change them. So what I'd really like to see is what it would look like to move DEIB out of a corporate paradigm and instead think about restructuring organizations completely. And there are a lot of different ways to do that, even though it's painful for a variety of reasons. And I know personally because I use it. I would like to see more focus on consensus-based decision-making. I would like to see more focus on growth and development, more standardization around compensation, not just pay equity, but understanding um, total compensation and the need for flexibility. I would like to see more uh, of the folks who are directly impacted by policies actually making the policies instead of being handed those policies. And I would like to explore structures that I don't even know about or haven't even thought about because really, especially in the US, there's kind of one structure and people make it better or they make it tougher depending on how they ultimately make decisions about what's important to them and to the business. But I would like to see some decapitalization overall of DEIB in particular, and a greater sense of what we see with grassroots organizing, with community-based approaches, um, and actually learning from what we're learning in nonprofits. What works best, if we think about effective altruism, is mutual aid. And that's person-to-person that is money directly to the community that needs to be served, as opposed to intermediaries, middle people who are deciding for a group instead of letting that group decide for themselves. So now thinking about the bigger picture, what would be the key implications of really exploring this field for our society beyond organizations? I think that it would be a complete and total shift of the way that we've managed our social systems, our political systems, our financial systems. It's a little bit tough to say because I'm speaking from the cultural context of being in the U.S. And so there's a very specific way that we do things here. 
But at the very least, it would, in my view, big picture, result in a greater social safety net, meaning we ask less of corporations in terms of what they they provide for their employees in terms of basic social services, and the government is more involved in that process. And so organizations themselves don't hold the most power in your life. That's the biggest thing that I really want to instill. One of the reasons that people really work to live in the U.S. and are more likely to be workaholics is because pretty much everything you need comes from your job in some way, whether it's the paycheck, whether it's the sponsorship, even whether it's the social support network. And so rethinking the way organizations work and implementing broad policy changes across our governmental systems could really help with our general problem of racial inequity, gender identity inequity, ability inequity, so many of these social identities that are just not being recognized and included in conversations, let alone empowered to actually make the decisions that would make them stronger and their community stronger. And what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Cultures of Belonging, surprised you the most? I think what surprised me the most was, and I know this to be true, but it's still hard, that two things can be true at the same time. And what I mean by that is a lot of the strategies in the book are super practical and don't necessarily fit that loftier vision I just named, but they're still necessary because that loftier vision isn't going to happen in a year. It will take a lot of time. We know that it will from just the past, (laughs) right? And so even though we might not dismantle the system, we Mm. can at least improve the everyday experience of employees and make things better for them while we work on this longer term goal. And I think that's what was most surprising to me as somebody who is in the work day to day and is always just trying to problem solve and help to say, I am not going to give up that approach and I'm also not going to become demoralized in thinking about that approach because it's our best option right now and it sets us up for pursuing better options in the future. So what would be your assessment of the water cooler gatherings which once we're back in the office? Are they really a waste of time or can they be useful for something? Social interaction is hugely useful. I want to acknowledge that our workplace environments are not flexible. And so the pushback to going to the office is tied to just the amount of constraints it puts on people, especially caregivers, but every group. So we see people who want to stay remote and they have really good reasons to want to stay remote. My team included the flexibility it offers, the ability to change location and space, the ability to manage your life in a more holistic way. And what is lost in those environments is exactly what you're talking about. People are more productive outside of an office than inside of an office because there are fewer distractions and fewer social interactions. However, Those social interactions are part of earning trust, feeling connected to other people, building those relationships that are so critical to a sense of belonging, and to just the sense of social wellness that you have a support system. And I am not one of those people who says your social support system can't come from work. I think that isn't logical if you're spending at minimum a third of your day within a workplace environment. You need some social support there. So... I think a lot is lost. And what we have to do is what we've done in the past as well and will continue to do in the future, which is find better solutions to being able to provide people with the flexibility that they so clearly need while also creating environments that allow for them to still have those unexpected, intimate, frequent social encounters. Well, this has been a truly informative discussion. Can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? 
Well, I'm currently working on not giving birth before my leave is officially slated to start. <laughs> um, and I will be on leave for 14 weeks. So uh, what I'm currently working on is building the stability and structure within the organization to make sure that everyone on the team is taken care of. I am also working on another book proposal. It's in the very early stages, but it's focused on a concept I've been developing over the last two and a half years called compassionate conversations. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? So first of all, alitamirandawolf.com, all one word, will have absolutely everything you need, links to the book, freebies. If you sign up for my newsletter, you'll get a template for how to do your own strategic plan, as well as a sample strategic plan around DEIB. So that first and foremost, I am on Twitter at AlitaMW, as well as on LinkedIn at AlitaMW. That's my link. But here's the good news for all of you. As far as I can tell, I am the only person who has my name. Um, I've gone through 26 pages of Google search results, and it is just me. So if you look up my name, you will find me wherever I am, and I am accessible to you and would love to talk to you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.